0: Welcome to All Music Movies, a part of the All Music Podcast series and a companion podcast to All Music Books Deep Dive. Here, we explore music films and documentaries rather than books, and there are so many great ones, old and new. In fact, these days, there seems to be a new music film or documentary every week, so we're very excited to explore this area. I'm your host, Steve Jay, so grab your popcorn, sit back and relax, enjoy the show. Let's talk music documentaries and films. Our guest today is Kevin Hosman, who is behind the documentary film The Album. This is a documentary on the evolution of the record industry, told from the perspective of art directors and photographers who created the most memorable art in music history. Kevin is a longtime art director and has done tons of album covers. Thank you for joining
1: us, Kevin. Hey, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's awesome when somebody actually out there uh, sees you you screaming on that mountaintop and saying, hey, let's give this guy a chance to uh, get to another audience. So I appreciate it. Thank you so much.
0: Well, that's one of the things Steve and I are both uh, music book and documentary junkies, and we want to shine a light on the people who've put a lot of work behind it, you know, and uh, and this is one case on on every level. You have a very deep history with regards to album cover design. Can you tell our listeners about your career in the music industry?
1: You know, when you uh, first start as a creative, there's an understanding when every Christmas you get the easy gifts uh, for a creative. It's a a scrap paper and and bigger paper. And everyone's trying to help encourage that crazy kid who is a musician or an artist or any kind of creative that is not really fitting in school. And and I think that that's kind of everybody that I (laughs) interviewed and everybody that they did covers for. But I think we're all unique. We're all different and the creatives are one that kind of stands out. I always wanted to be a Disney animator. I grew up in Chicago. I heard of CalArts, which was started by Disney up in Valencia, and I had to get there. I had to become an animator. What I realized is that animators actually before they get there, have drawn in their sleep for 26 hours a day, are light years beyond a capability of just a guy who has the the motivation and the drive, right? So I got there, I realized I wasn't going to be a Disney animator, but I found this thing called graphic design, and I never realized it even actually existed. But everything that we own, everything that we purchase in any way has a logo on it, has some designer that kind of created the exterior of it, the interior of it, the way that you approach it in a store. Everything is designed. This experience that we have on our planet here uh, is very choreographed by a lot of creatives. But when I did get into CalArts, I stayed and I stayed in the graphic design department and I had this teacher, Roland Young. Oh, wow. Roland created half of the albums that I'd bought as a kid. Um, One of my favorites was Styx Equinox, you know, the ice cube that's melting because it's on fire. That was Roland. And Roland was about that. It was about ideas. It was about giving you an image that really reflected the art, but it also had a, a message for you that when you walked in that record store, you walked past that bin, it caught your eye. And it wasn't just a photograph of the band, but the expressive design that you could create and put on a square object that would make somebody pick up that album and say, I have to own this. I graduated from college. My teacher, Roland Young, saw something in me and said, hey, why don't you go to see Roy Kahara, the art director who was at Capitol Records at the time. His uh, big claim to fame was uh, Against the Wind, Bob Seger. Remember that beautiful illustration of all the horses running? but he was an amazing mentor and I really learned a lot from him. Anyway, I started Capitol Records as my first gig, which was kind of an awesome thing, but I tried to still always make sure that the work that I did for that man was of uh, the highest quality. If you think back at the time that I started at Capitol Records, only 15% of record sales was a CD. So at the time, the album was still prominent and that's what you designed for. So the first cover that I'd actually ever done was Megadeth, So Far, So Good, So What? And we shot it all in video. I had no idea going to a photo shoot what to do. So we only have one photo of the Mm. band. Thankfully, my boss didn't fire me because I I was so ill-equipped. When I went to Capitol Records, I was being introduced to Roy by Roland Young, who was one of the largest, biggest album cover designers of all time. But when he was my same age, Rod Dyer was there, Ed Thrasher was there, John Van Hammersfeld was there, all of these guys that I interviewed. Rod Dyer was one of the most stylish men you'd ever seen, and he made it look as if it was the coolest thing, Mm. the coolest career you could possibly have.
0: It's funny because that intro captures a lot of what I want to talk about, and it's it's fascinating uh, as a creative and as a designer. Your film covers so much ground. You have a long history with many of the people you interviewed, and you focus on the entire stable of creative people art directors, photographers, and illustrators. They all have great stories. I want to start with one that I know his work really well, as most rock and roll fans will, but Neil Preston is a photographer. But I had no idea his story of how he started, in the initial pitch, and what that featured. And I just love the story. Can you share that with our listeners?
1: Yeah, what the album tried to do is try to show that all of these people, in a sense, had the same experience. They had the beginning of their career, the middle of their career, and the end of their career. All of them had that same progression. So, what I did is I tried to actually take pieces of everyone's conversation about what was the coolest this or the coolest that in that evolution of someone's journey through being a, an album cover designer. And Neil's stood out because it was perfect. It had two pieces to it that I thought were absolutely what everyone else felt. He experienced the Beatles play on Ed Sullivan and he says it changed his life. He said at one point he was just a normal kid playing stickball, overnight it was get a guitar, learn how to play, be in a band. He picked up the camera and he started going to all the shows that were at a venue that was in his neighborhood. So he started sneaking in and started taking photographs of all the bands. The photographs he took, he took into the front office, but what turned out it was the promoter's office and they started letting him in for free. At that time, there was no one who really understood rock and roll, who really could actually captivate an audience. The photographers were mature, they were old. They had 35 millimeter film that would cost to produce, right? When you get a kid inspired and excited to take those photographs and go out and be out there late, 11, midnight, two o'clock in the morning when these guys are playing, this is when they're their best. Those are the photos he captured. And that was what he was known for. He was known for taking amazing photos to the point that Led Zeppelin came to him and said, we love your work. We want you to go out with us on tour. And it's like, well, when someone says in the early 70s, Neil, we would like you to come with us, Led Zeppelin, the biggest rock band of all time, and certainly the biggest at, at that time, would you like to hang out and party and take photos, right? Who, who's going to turn down that opportunity? Right.
0: He's like 21 at the time, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. He was quite young. Most of the people that I interviewed, their biggest wow story is when they're that young because they didn't know when they were taking chances and risks that they were actually coming up with the chemistry and the excitement that the old timers didn't catch and that's one of those things as a graphic designer now I kind of have to realize you got to give it to the young ones because they don't know they're doing it wrong. (laughs) They don't know that they're creating something that we're too steadfast in our ways of producing something on budget, on time. Here it is that we become stodgy and we don't realize we have become stodgy until we start seeing the new work from the youngest that's doing it now.
0: There's us. There's the creative directors. That's what you've done. That's what I've done. There are other people. One of them is a photographer. Others are illustrators. But the creative directors are the one who come up with and facilitate and execute the creative strategy, as you kind of just said. You have to involve the other people and get everybody on the same page. Henry Diltz is another photographer that you talk to, and I've worked with him as well. And he's a West Coast guy, and he was into that sound. And out of all of the, the creative kind of uh, philosophies or skill sets, personality probably plays the most with a photographer. Would you agree with that?
1: A thousand percent. When he was living in Oral Canyon back in the 70s, all of his friends were just musicians as he was. He was in the modern folk quartet, right? He was a musician with a camera. He tells the story of going on tour and picking up an old camera in a used store and saying, yeah, let's just put some film in it and see what happens. So these people that he knew in Laurel Canyon were actually huge. I mean, we know them as megastars now, but they were just buddies. He would hang out at Mama Cass's house, which is where everyone else would. Joni Mitchell, Stephen Stills, Graham Nash, you know, everyone down to Jackson Brown, who was a younger audience, <laughs> right, uh, from from those older uh, huge stars, uh, that he would just go around with his camera and take photographs of his friends. Just He would just take a snapshot here, one there, they would hang out, they would have lunch, and he would just photograph people, right? One of the images that I did get from him and I have in the piece is uh, a big group shot, black and white, of everyone sitting down laughing and having a great time. And it's just of Mama Cass talking to Joni Mitchell. But off to the side, I never realized it until I actually saw his documentary, uh, David Geffen, (laughs) a young David Geffen, just having a good time hanging out with these people you don't realize that David Geffen in that audience at that time is going to become a billionaire off of all of their music and being their go-to person to make sure that their vision is, is seen.
0: Which, you know, uh, I would argue also that it's the creatives who also help put this product together that gets these artists further as well. And, you know, Henry has got a very organic style. And as you mentioned with Neil Preston, he's got his photographs capture a lot more energy. So you, you, know, you really have to kind of uh, assess what the band needs or wants or what you think they need or want and then guide them to the right people and then to make it successful, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. One of the biggest things that you have to do, it's kind of this big hug that you need to have. When you are first brought on a project as an art director, you are told, okay, this is kind of their vision. Here's the cassette, this is what they're about, and that type of thing. And then you have a meeting with the band. You hang out, you talk to them, you kind of get an understanding if they have any ideas, or you throw out some ideas as well. And you also bring along some portfolios. You bring portfolios of photographers or illustrators, just kind of, hey, this is kind of what we were thinking. And the photography portfolio is one that is just simply great images that everyone looks through and says, wow, I want to emulate that album that was so successful last year. Well, that's fine (laughs) if you're that same artist who's going to replicate that same success. But what people tend to do with a photographer is they try to get the look and the, the, the essence of what is the vibe of what is now. But what's more important than even that is that those two entities, the band and the photographer, have to meet and they have to click. And if they don't click, they're not going to get anything good out of that day. And you only have one day, one photo shoot for the most part, to actually get the shots that you'll need for the entire length of that album and and its promotion. So what you try to do is get a cover shot. You try to get a back cover shot, you know, those obvious things, but you also try to get what was back in the day, singles. There would be two or three singles for, for any album that went out, right? So now we're up to five. And then we have a few publicity shots. Now we're up to six. You try to, in one day, try to get six to 10 good shots. So what you do is you go in there with a wardrobe And it's already been picked out. They put it on them. And if they like them, sometimes they buy them. But for the most part, you have a wardrobe so that you have six to eight looks and different backgrounds. And you go out on the street, you try to get images that look as if they happen throughout the year, right? Not just one afternoon. That doesn't work. You know, the length of an album is a full year, right? They go on tour and then they have another single that comes out. It's got to look fresh. It can't look like the album cover itself.
0: Right, right. We're speaking with Kevin Hossman, a creative director from Music Labels and the director of the documentary film The Album. You mentioned the Styx album cover, and illustrators, to me, are a completely different animal. You know, they do what they do, and it's up to the band, the artist, the manager, perhaps the creative director, to like it, you know, or for a creative director to say, I think this would work with what you're looking to do. You know, you can't imagine a progressive band, like Yes, without Roger Dean, who you do speak with. Uh, what's your take on illustrators and how, how do you pitch those to bands? Do they need to have a concept or are you bringing the concept or, or how, what's your process there?
1: It really depends on who you're talking to, what the amount of involvement that artist really wants to be in the process. When I was working with the Beastie Boys, um, Adam Yauk was absolutely hands on. He was hands-on to the point that there was one day in the Capitol Records Tower that I was putting together a mechanical for the tune lineup, which is basically the sticker that goes on that that vinyl. And he's just trying to pick over my shoulder absolutely the, the letting, the space between, to the point that I got so frustrated that day. I turned around, I got up, I walked out into the center right? Because it's a, it's a circular hallway. And I just started walking. So I walked all the way around and he, he kind of caught me as I was walking around the second time, just to blow off steam. And he came out and just apologized profusely. It's like, dude, sorry. I'm, you know, we're just trying to work together. Right. It's like, no, you just let me be the designer and you can, you can tell me what to do, but don't sit on me so hard that I can't be this much creative for you because I'm here for you. I work for you. We became actually really good friends after that point. And, you know, one of my favorite memories is up on the roof of the Capitol Records Tower, sitting there with just me and the Beastie Boys, looking at the Hollywood sign, smoking a joint, and just passing it back and forth. They were so young, they were right after licensed to ill, right? So they were the biggest thing to come to Capitol Records in years. So that's why it was a little odd that a 23-year-old boy would say, go <laughs> yourself to their biggest signed act. That's kind of how you get fired but instead it actually got me a little more respect with a great band and an amazing creative team, but they were very much hands-on. So when you actually talk about bringing an idea into the Beastie Boys or anyone else like that, you really have to understand who they are and how to approach them and what they're really looking for. The relationship that Roger had with Yes is something that actually lasted their entire life. In the movie, I actually come and interview him when he's on tour with Yes in Steve Howe's dressing room. I mean, for a kid who one of his first A-tracks that he bought was Roundabout <laughs> mm-hmm. to actually be in his space right before he went on stage to interview the guy who created illustrations that everyone emulated in high school come on who didn't have a petri <laughs> folder that didn't have roger dean drawings all over it so yeah roger was uh, very much that he's quite an amazing guy and his art studio if you ever see it is is quite profound it's just a big beautiful barn that just creativity just pours out of the doors
0: And funny, uh, I'm reminded of a scene in your movie of a Motown designer who was working with Marvin Gaye, and Marvin Gaye was starting to tell him, uh, you know, what to do. And he just said, much like your reaction, a little bit cleaner, but he said, you know what, I don't tell you how to sing. Don't tell me how to do my job. And, you know, that's a moment I'm sure any designer has ever felt, whether you articulate it or not, is kind of up to you. One of the art directors in your film states is side-by-side with band members. This is where something cool happens. And I agree with that a lot of the time, not all of the time.
1: That was actually Robert Fisher who did all of the Nirvana covers. And he also did, and he was speaking of working with Beck. Beck was brand new. Nirvana was brand new when he worked for them, right? When you're brand new, you don't know you can be an asshole. (laughs) When you're Marvin Gaye, you can tell anybody whatever, right? And that's why it was such a challenge for Carl to actually say that to him because he was the star of the time, right? When somebody's a brand new artist, they don't know that they can say, well, why are we only doing two days of a photo shoot? Why aren't we doing four? Why are we only using this photographer that is $5,000 a day when we can get Annie Lewis to do it for $100,000? When you have the Michael Jackson <laughs> threshold, you can ask whatever you want. Michael Jackson's scream video with his sister, Janet, was actually $7 million just for the video. What happens when you have a Michael Jackson ego is that you can ask for that. Most videos at the time were actually being done for about fifty to maybe $100,000, which was also a lot of money at the time because sometimes they never got aired. And that's kind of an interesting story on in itself.
0: It's interesting. It's, it's certainly a journey. And, and on the other hand, uh, of working side by side, which some of my, you know, Bob Mould, I loved working with him.
1: Fantastic guy, right? Wonderful mm-hmm. to work with.
0: And if you gain that trust at some point, you know, Branford Marsalis for me, I've done for him, he'll send me a cassette and says, design what you hear. That's like the ultimate freedom and the ultimate trust you know, sitting side by side is a lot of fun. And then there's that other thing, you know? So I guess it really depends on the work and the artist and the process. I mean, you know, I think good designers should probably know both ways.
1: I think you're also talking about you as a mature person working with Marsalis and me as a 23 year old hotshot working with a hotshot, right? Right, right. It's called egos and it's called fists bumping. (laughs) And often that gives that friction of something cool If you meet people like that, you'll realize that personalities have to connect and they have to gel on so many levels because when you're asking them to trust you, to give them one image that reflects a year's worth of music, you really have to have that trust. And if you don't, they're going to look for another image and they're never going to be satisfied until they find that epiphany that doesn't even exist. I've had too many of those too. It's like we chase each other's tail so long that there just is this beautiful thing called a deadline. And then you just, there's only 24 hours in the day. And you know, you hit the the timer and it's like, time's up. What do you got?
0: And the bigger the band, the bigger the problem, you know, it's like, well, you look great there, but I don't. And then you have to go through that whole process you're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. We're speaking with Kevin Hossman, a creative director from Music Labels and the director of the documentary film The Album. Uh, but back in the day, there was a ton of competition amongst bands and designers and, and kind of that teamwork there. And the whole image and output thing was, was huge.
1: It was. It was also a lot of one upmanship and a lot of people really got into what's mine going to look like compared to the other person coming out at the same release date, right? They wanted everybody to look at theirs, not someone else's. But what was interesting about the fact that everyone was one-upping oneself, the Grammys started giving Grammys for the best album packaging, right? So when that happened, it one up it even further so that to win that award, you had to put a lot of effort into what that package was. It wasn't just a great cover by a a huge artist. I said Annie Leibovitz before, MC Hammer on his third album, they paid for a hundred thousand dollar photo shoot and they didn't use the image. Wow. Because it was done in a way that had had so many, so much imagery in it that was suspicious to the people who were going to rack it, Handelman in Kmart or in you know all of the stores, that they got so nervous about the imagery that was in that cover that they chose, they had to go with a simpler image. There's a lot of times that you wish that you had the budget and one of the simplest ways of making your cover look a little interesting or more, more different was actually simply to take the coated stock and flip it And only print on the the mat stock so you actually had this 70s kind of looking image that a lot of the 70s people did that. Gary burden, who did a lot of work with Henry dilt uh, in all those covers he did a lot of that and desperado is actually done that way, Uh, a lot of eagles covers actually have it so it's just. Neil Young, he did so many of them. It was just that different stock and it just gave you a totally different quality.
0: It reflected the music.
1: Yes, it reflected the the hipness of that kind of gritty LA style, right? It was about ingenuity. It was about, okay, I got $7. What kind of photo can I make with $7? Or if I have $700, what can I do with that? And sometimes the more money you had, the worse the cover became because you had too much excess and it wasn't focused on that raw idea that made you feel the music.
0: That's the second of the escape routes. You mentioned deadlines. Budget would be number two, I think. Um, It seems to me though, you know, one band I think is really synonymous with great album covers and then uh, that would be Pink Floyd. And, you know, they have a really astounding catalog. Dark Side of the Moon is probably one of the most iconic of all times. Animals is a great cover which I didn't know until I saw your film that Roger Waters came up with the idea of that and you know his design firm Hypnosis not his firm but who worked with Pink Floyd they came together and designed that album cover and and there's a hilarious story they tell about the famous pig balloon for the cover shoot
1: I'm not going to nearly say it as well as Aubrey Powell did this is one of the other things I learned from listening to these people they told those stories so many times, it's down to an absolute soundbite. And he does a wonderful job in the piece talking about coming up with the idea of animals. And they had a large pig that they had manufactured, and it was a balloon. Everyone's seen it. And they were going to float it over the stage, because Pink Floyd, if you see him in concert, they don't move much, right? They're not rolling stones. So the idea was, is that this pig that they had already had is like, I don't know, let's come up with something because if you look at a lot of their covers that Hypnosis did, they were creating stories, right? Because Pink Floyd really didn't like their photos being taken. So it wasn't going to be that kind of cover. So it was going to be another idea. Roger Waters lived real close to that power station. So he simply said, well, why don't we float the pig that we have for our stage show over that? Let's do something like that, something symbolic. And unfortunately, when they got out there that day, you have to understand a lot of times you're doing a run and gun. You don't have a permit. You're there because somebody left the gate open. So they're out there, they're floating it up all the way into the the air. And all of a sudden it snaps and it just floats away. And again, like I say, When someone tells that bar story so many times, it becomes so perfectly staged and progressed. And then it got in their lanes of Heathrow Airport, and then they set out fighter jets to try to knock it down. And then eventually it simply landed in a farmer's field and they finally got a call from that farmer. And he simply stated, come get your damn pig. It's scaring my cows.
0: I tell you, that's a great story. And, uh, you know, it only makes the album cover better. When you look at it, that's what I see now. And I laugh. And I just think, and it's a great cover, because there's a lot of meaning, as all Pink Floyd album covers have, that you can take what you need out of it, you know, but it's it's a great story.
1: What you just said about you take what you need out of it is exactly what Storm was all about. He was about, well, Rorschach test, what do you see? What What does it mean to you? As long as it's, an open enough question it can fit any music that's why hypnosis did so many covers they did so many covers for so many people that they were just well take this how about this take this how about that
0: the flip side to that and i think every designer you know worships at the blue note altar but you know that label did the exact opposite you know there were photographs and color And they worked really well with each individual album. But the larger context of Blue Note was always very, very clearly represented in their work.
1: Reed Miles was brilliant. There's nothing you can say beyond that sentence.
0: That's good. We'll stop there.
1: (laughs) No, we can go a little further, because in that movie of mine, I have a fantastic story that gives homage to the brilliance of Reed Miles. He Basically, just had session photos, right? A lot of the photos were his too, but he just had session photos. When when Miles Davis passed away, I had the you know the blessing to actually be able to go photograph these guys. Ron Carter is actually in there jotting down music while we're he's waiting for us to you know load a camera. They're creating music in front of you, and they only gave us five minutes. Can you imagine? You get in front of the jazz stars of all time. And all you got is five minutes. Why? Because these guys were not about what they look like. They were not about anything but that music. And that's why when he would have session photos, which is all he had, he was able to make brilliance out of it. One of the interviews that I have talks to Rich Frankel, who was the head of the department at a and at the time. He states that Joe Jackson, who is such a Sonny Rollins fan, came into the office and said, my idea is this. It's simple. I want to replicate that cover. And so what they did is they went out and they photographed it to a T of exactly what it was. And they switched the colors, which is nice because it comes as a companion piece. It's not a mirror image of it. It's actually something that is giving homage to the brilliance of Reed Miles and all the photography and, and the brilliant typography that he had done over the years for Blue Note.
0: Sadly, all of this is sort of the analog past, which is side A of your film. And we'll get into side B, which you call the digital future. But I want to talk just a minute about the compact disc revolution, which was pretty fascinating because on the one hand, the record labels could resell and redesign their entire catalog for fans. fan. You know, on the other hand, you're going from 12 by 12 to 5 by 5. So it was tough for designers to get that thing down and have it read and all that kind of stuff. But again, they also were able to have box sets and all this brilliant stuff. I, I think that's a really underrated age of the music packaging business.
1: Well, it's also when Rhino Records were re-releasing things, Um, they realized that everyone had these in their collection and they were buying them again. But the CD was one of those points where you could then start thinking about storytelling more than just a single image. With the album, cover image, back cover. And you had liner notes, right? Very, very minimal. But when you had the CD, the thing that was great about that is that you had a front cover. You had a back cover. You had the CD label you could actually print on. You had the back lay of the tray. And then depending on your budget, you had a fold out or you had 16 pages that you could put images in. As I was talking about a photo shoot trying to get eight images, because of those you were able to actually use not just the eight images that all the band members agreed upon. Oh, I look good in each one of these. Very difficult with eight people in a photo, right? Try to do that with your family, you know, vacation shot. But the same thing is that when you had 16 pages to actually put something with, you're able to actually do incidental shots. Little shots like when I was doing Ice Cube's America's Most Wanted in front of his mom's house, photographing all of that stuff. The guys started playing dice and they had 40 ounces of malt liquor, right? And then they were just playing. And I was like, oh my God, this is awesome. Why we're ready setting something up. So we just started photographing them playing dice. And Those were the types of shots that you could put throughout that booklet because then you could actually tell a story. You could then really start thinking about before you went to the photo shoot. Let's tell a story about this music, not just picking one image, but telling this beautiful paginated experience that everyone could enjoy. And then, if I could end with this one on that idea, is that way back in the day, because they didn't want to change the way that the record stores were set up, they had these bins that were for the album. So the long box or the spaghetti box as we called it was born because it you could put two of them inside that same bin and you didn't have to create new shelves and stuff like that. So they didn't they they knew they were gonna potentially start losing money because they, they hated change. So when they were able to actually do that, they were able to save what they had as a racking system. But what was neat about that is that on the spaghetti box is where you had to put the top third you always had to put the the name of the band the name of the record all of that stuff could be there but what's awesome is it was thrown out not for recycling but what was awesome is that spaghetti box was thrown out and then that meant like Beastie Boys Paul's Boutique which I had done uh, or Abbey Road the Beatles which I had not done that was cause you didn't have to have any graphics any image except what you wanted on that cover so the spaghetti box gave you the ability to just say i'm not going to put a logo on it i'm not going to put the name of the album on it i'm just going to have a photo so cds were actually kind of cool but it was also very difficult to design that small but then you have to understand what happened when it went to one inch is that you had to design for not only the one inch that was in the itunes store but you also had to do it for the cd and then also the album nowadays what's awesome about the album and it coming back is the album actually takes longer to manufacture. So because of that, they start on it first. And what's awesome about that is it means that we went back to our roots. We're not designing for the iTunes one inch, the Spotify one inch. We start our design process with that album, that beautiful canvas size, once again.
0: I've always hated the top third rule, by the way. Uh, so, <laughs> I never followed yeah, it. <laughs> me either. I had many fights with uh, salespeople on that. But um, you mentioned storytelling. Uh, and as part of the digital revolution, there's MTV, which, you know, for some of us, it ruined different parts of it. And record labels seem to have a love-hate relationship with MTV. Did you find that to be true?
1: I never realized it when I was there at Capitol or when I was freelance with all the other labels, Warner Brothers, I would see all of these things in a VHS. I never realized it because I was never in the top offices, the people who actually budgeted a 50 to $150,000 normal video that then would never see the light of day. And there are people, program directors at MTV and VH1 that basically were the gatekeepers. They were the roadblock. So if they felt as if it wasn't going to capture the audience, it didn't matter that you spent $200,000 on this thing. They just threw it out. That's why Duran Duran they went to exotic places to be able to film stuff that would captivate an audience and also throw in a few beautiful <laughs> girls at the same time. So they spent money smart. Everyone else thought that they could emulate that. Let's just have a big budget and do something really cool. But if it didn't captivate someone, it wasn't really something that people would respond to. A great example of an album that was kind of irrelevant is Aha. With Aha's take on me, Jeff Aroff was the head of the art department. He was their creative czar. He saw a student film and he said, I got to have that guy do my next video. So he told his assistant to go give that person money to not take another gig until he found a gig he wanted to put him on. That's the money they had during those days. Just sit on the beach and I'm going to get you something absolutely that you're going to sink your teeth into so when you see that aha video where he becomes an animated character a live girl with a hand-drawn guy in front of a mirror and they go back and forth you would think that that was absolutely thought of and was reason why they even created the band right i mean that's the most memorable shot probably one of the most memorable mtv videos it happened because jeff Aroff saw a great student film that's how a lot of those people actually got their start through mtv
0: yeah my biggest problem there and it's it's you know contrary to what you mentioned about hypnosis is that what do you take out of it and i found too often mtv or or the creative people behind the videos would try to tell me that story instead of letting me figure out what i thought the song was about and and that was just a very different approach and it depends on the age that you were when you saw those but you know it makes sense for a younger generation and You still hear them today. They'll hear a song and they say, I love that video. And that just kind of rubs me the wrong way, you know.
1: I mentioned that uh, one of the first covers I ever did was Megadeth. And the project manager on that was Jeremy Hammond. And he moved on at Capitol Records and became influential in the catalog. And they had a point that Pink Floyd had an anniversary Dark Side of the Moon event to celebrate the fact that it's been around and influenced so many people and that they were trying to basically obviously make some more money. Right. Right. So what they did is they had an event at the Ebell theater, which is just basically a big, beautiful ballroom in Los Angeles. And they got a hundred beanbag chairs and a hundred headphones and they played pink Floyd (laughs) dark side of the moon for people to basically stare off into the dark ceiling right? That was about, as you said, the experience of what I am experiencing. Drugs and alcohol help influence that. (laughs) But for the most part, if you have great music like Dark Side of the Moon, you're staring up at the ceiling and you're seeing what you are seeing. And the the guy right next to you on that other beanbag chair, he's not seeing the same thing. But that's what that music was truly all about. Another gentleman that I interviewed who was the head of Capitol Records at the time that Pink Floyd dropped off Dark Side of the Moon to the tower for the first time he was in the room when they put that needle down and played Dark Side of the Moon for all the executives. He was there for the first playing of Dark Side of the Moon at Capitol Records. What I think is really funny about that, when you are in a room with an executive at a record company hearing an album for the first time, they're waiting for that song they know they're going to be able to sell the rest mm-hmm. of the album on, right. right? So I'm sure when they heard the, uh, the cash drawer and, and, the, and, and they heard all of that going on, Wow.
0: You know, it's funny, because I think the other thing is, uh, you know, I would speak to all those people sitting in the dark, thinking that the music means different things. It's still a shared experience, which is part of one of the things that I think, you know, the the digital revolution has sort of squashed. I think with file sharing and and Spotify and those kinds of things, it's changed. We have playlists instead of mixtapes. What is your uh, final judgment on the digital revolution, both from um, a music and a packaging standpoint?
1: I started in the record industry when I was 23. I am now 58. I have six kids. My youngest is 21 and I have five grandkids. The way that I would always judge things is I would put it in front of my kid. Hey, what do you think of this? Or if I saw them doing something, Hey, this thing called Facebook, right? My daughter was at UC San Diego at the time. And what's that new thing called Facebook? the adoption of new ideas happen with young people. When you're old and we're looking back and we're thinking about our experience of taking that album, putting it on and giving the artist your undivided time until the needle was on the end of that side and you flipped it over and started it again, you were experiencing something as a relationship with that band. Nowadays, it's more about playlists and it's about, the way that that music fits into their selfish lifestyle right to me my feeling is is that we gave the artist our time i believe that audiences nowadays the artist has to take backseat what i think is awesome about it is the uh, the record industry was this thing that made money for themselves Uh, You hear too many stories, all these artists, that uh, they were ripped off. They wish that they had better control of their actual IP, intellectual property. And you think about all of the people who are known for being, in a sense, the people who had made more money than the artist. Nowadays, it's really not that. There used to be a marketplace called a record store. And regardless of what you thought about what was in that record store, it was curated, Nowadays, the curation has to happen through you or through some kind of influencer. And to the point that if you think an influencer is not rigging the deck (laughs) the same way, why did that poster get up on that wall in the record store? It's because it was paid. It's pay to play. It was always that way. So if you think that it's different and it's uh, for the better because people are able to touch the music in a different way, it used to be that the tour promoted the album. And now the album promotes the tour and people have identified with the experiential. I want to spend $300 additional to go and meet the band ahead of time. And I get the swag that all is, you know, that no one can get except for me and 50,000 of your (laughs) favorite friends. The experience nowadays is really just different. And for me to say to my kids and my grandkids, well, the way that you listen to music is wrong when I was your age, we did this. Well, it just evolves. We don't have a single album cover image anymore that we stare at. We have 24 seven Instagram and that's how they've evolved it. And that's what it seems kids want today, because it wouldn't be that if it wasn't getting the clicks and the hits.
0: I'm going to point out, and I'm sure you know this, but the, um, The evolution, which is the vinyl comeback, is astonishing and remarkable, and I love to see it. And that's largely driven by a younger generation as well now, too. Uh, And as you know, it takes a year to get an album made, so it's it's slowly moving. I find it fascinating to see that turning around. And, you know, some people say there's a CD comeback and even a cassette tape comeback. We'll see about that one. Let me end on two quotes that are in your movie and get your take on them. And I, and I certainly don't want to sound like the old people in the room, although we probably do. But these are people in your movie who are of that generation. But there was a couple of things, and I guess it is how you grew up with music. But one of them that really that really stuck out to me is somebody said, no packaging, no context. And I fully agree with that quote.
1: The art director that mentioned that was Masaki masaki noted that in the album he worked a lot with rhino records and he was talking about rhino records content property that they would always get or try to get the best photos images that you hadn't seen before they would really spend money on liner notes and get people involved historians to actually kind of pull all of that together to really make it something that if they ever re-released it it wouldn't nearly be as great a package as the one that they had created for you $200 later. But Masaki talks about how Rhino would actually really lean into the information and the context and give you an understanding historically how that music fit in and how that music influenced other music. And if you look at a playlist, you can have a 40-year playlist, right, of the same tone right so in that 40 years you don't realize that many of those people influence the song you're about to hear or the song that you just heard right because there are genres that are forever when i was listening to k-rock a 50s station in la in the 80s that was like the 90s music we're hearing today <laughs> right? I don't have the same nostalgic desire for any of the 90s music, even Talking Heads, uh, to actually make me want to relive that like Chuck Berry did.
0: However, you just brought this up. And the one thing that I think, you know, the digital revolution did do is it took the power away from the labels and put it into the hands of the artists. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. And the final quote, that somebody said and i just love this quote it says it all changed once the bundle got unbundled and you know you can use those words as record business terms or you can just use them as regular terms And it makes a ton of sense about the you know power that you can put out music and you don't have to go through a record store you don't have to be signed to a label you don't have to have a distributor you can do all that yourself you can do the pr and your website all of that stuff and i think it does speak to an artistic revolution as well
1: Nowadays, you can record an album in your bedroom and you can get it out on Spotify that night. That was in direct definition of what was Billie Eilish at the time, what she was doing. And then she was signed by Interscope and now she's their biggest star. (laughs) So in a strange way, it might alter the way that people find you, but it's not altering the way you're monetized. It used to be a singles market. But then when they started putting it into an album or a collection of songs, that became a playground for artists to imagine bigger ideas.
0: Kevin, I know it's on the film circuit. You've won a lot of awards. It's a great movie and congratulations. And I really enjoyed speaking with you. You know, we'll do what we can to get the word out. It's it's truly
1: a great movie. Oh, thank you.
0: You can watch Kevin's film on Amazon. Just go to Amazon.com and search The Album. All Music Movies is part of the All Music Podcast Series and a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network.